You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Plains Church in Castleton, North Dakota. This teaching is meant to encourage you in your faith, but not replace the preaching and accountability that should only come from your own local church. That said, we hope this sermon helps you know God more by simply listening to what he has to say in his word. Let me read Matthew 16, 13 to 20. It says this, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Cody, Pastor Cody, preached the first few verses of Matthew 16 a couple weeks ago. And if you recall, he exhorted you to let your lives be permeated by the truth of God's word as opposed to the opposite, false teaching. When I listened to what he said, this stuck out to me. He said, he exhorted you, Christians, do you want to grow? Do you want to be effective? Do you want to bear fruit? then stay away from false teachers and stay away from false teaching. It can affect everything in your life and everything for the worse. You see, in the first 12 verses of Matthew 16, Jesus warns his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And what he meant by that analogy was to be on guard against their false teaching. And just as leaven works its way through bread, he said, this teaching, if you let it in, is going to work its way through. And it's going to have a devastating effect. And all falsehood, to some degree, has this effect. But it is is incredibly devastating when a falsehood is given as though it came from God. So a falsehood attributed to God, given to people, has an especially devastating effect. And so he said, beware. And these Pharisees and Sadducees ultimately taught a number of things wrong, but they got the ultimate truth wrong, the identity of Jesus. And that's where our passage took us or takes us today. When Pastor Cody asked if I would uh, fill in and preach to you guys this morning. I was actually standing in my garage feeling like I just got knocked off my horse. I had just read a letter from the mother of one of my high school classmates. And in it, she told me about how her child and the child's spouse, who... I had watched seemingly walk with the Lord, conduct, they they were high school sweethearts, conduct their relationship in a godly manner. I was at their wedding. It seemed like this is a couple who loves the Lord and stands for him. And she was writing to me in this letter to say, they have left the faith and they've apostatized. And I could almost 
see the tears in her eyes as she talked about they've even said and told me that I cannot talk to their kids, my grandkids, about Jesus. And so I'm feeling, I wasn't shocked. I know that apostasy happens, but the, the reality of how sad this was had really hit me, and I, was, I actually just went out to my garage and was just kind of thinking about it. And men and women, we may start making the good confession, and we need, we, we all start making the good confession, but we need to continue it. What each one of us here believes about Jesus of Nazareth is the most important thing about you. The most important thing now, and it will be the most important thing in the end. The passage we just read, some have called it the apex, not only of Matthew, but even of the entire Old Testament and New Testament, the entire Bible, because Jesus poses the question, who do you say I am? And the disciples through Peter provide the correct answer. A little background to the, to the setting that we're in. Okay, Caesarea Philippi is, a, is located about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And in the area, one of the largest springs that feeds the, the Jordan River is located. And it comes out of a large cave. And in this cave, it was a center for pagan worship. So in the third century BC, sacrifices were often cast into this uh, cave as an offering to the god Pan. So Pan was the, the Greek half-man, half-goat uh, god of fright, thus where we get our word panic. It was often depicted by playing the flute. And so there was a history of, of pagan worship in this area. But even before Pan, it, were, it was the center of Baal worship. As you're familiar with your Bible, you understand that worship of Baal was a snare to the Israelites and the, the, the Canaanites before them worshipped Baal. And Baal was the god of fertility, uh, both of the earth and of people. And you, you can see why, in a, in a human sense, people were drawn towards that type of worship. When you live on the edge of needing your crops every year to come in, or you are on the brink of starvation, you can see how sinful people would say, well, we're going to worship uh, a God that should provide some type of fer uh, fertility. But in the, in the present time, when Jesus takes his disciples there, uh, Philip the Tetrarch, who is the son of Herod the Great, he had changed the name of the main city from Panias to Caesarea Philippi in honor of himself and Caesar Augustus. And today they found coins when they've done archaeological digs in the area uh, that were minted that depict the temple uh, that Philip built to honor Augustus Caesar. So here's what we have, all right? If you picture on your map the Sea of Galilee and you have an understanding perhaps that it, most of Israel is located below that, Jesus has taken them up to an area that is the crossroads between worship of the true God and heathendom. And it's in this setting that he poses this question. And the setting would have a very visceral uh, type of, or evoke a very visceral type of response, I believe, in the disciples. I once uh, did mission work in a country in Eastern Asia, and one of the long-term 
missionaries decided to take some of us to a pagan temple to see what the people of that region worshipped and how empty it was. And I remember standing you know, at the outskirts of this temple and one man in particular really stuck, sticks with me. It's kind of burnt into my memory. He's, he's kneeling down prostrate. He has incense burning next to him. He's moving up and down and chanting a prayer and before him is this metal statue. And for someone who understands who the living God is and how hopeless and, poor and lost this man and all those in the temple were, it was a very powerful and moving situation. And so Jesus brings his disciples into an area known for its worship of other gods. But additionally, he's also removed them from the adoring crowds of Galilee. So he's going to ask them the question, who do you say I am? Well, it's easy to perhaps respond similarly to your environment. Well, if you're in Galilee and the people are adoring, that's one thing. But he's also removed them from Judea, where people want to kill him. And this is the main point of this morning's message. It's this, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Notice with me the first thing that we see in this passage is that people naturally see Jesus as less than he really is. So he starts out by asking them, who do people say the Son of Man is? Right? The Son of Man uh, is a title Jesus uses of himself. He uses it about 80 or so times in the New Testament. And he asks this question, it is significant to note, it's been two years of his public ministry. So he's asking a question where people have a degree of information. If he asked it way earlier, someone might say, well, I don't really know because I haven't been around the person. Additionally, the disciples have been with Jesus for two plus years, and he sets up the question he's going to ask them by asking them first, what do people say? And in verse 14, the answer that they give is some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And these answers have a few things in common and are similar. So one, people thought Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. So they understood there is something really special about this guy. He's a prophet. He's powerful. Herod the Tetrarch in Matthew 14, 2, maybe gave a summary statement of what he thought, but also what a lot of people said when he was asked about who Jesus was. He said, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So here's the, the first answer. Well, he's this resurrected prophet that has miraculous powers. But notice what, he, what he's not. He's not the Messiah. He's not the Christ. That's not the answer that people are given. Similarly, Elijah. So the Old Testament prophesies that Elijah will come before the Christ. In fact, in Malachi 4.5, it says this, Behold, I send you Elijah, before that great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And so the Jews believed Elijah would be literally resurrected as a forerunner 
to the Messiah. Now, Jesus explained that a prophet in the spirit and power of Elijah would come, and he was referring to John the Baptist. Um, actually, in Matthew uh, 14, 14, he says, if you're willing to accept it about John the Baptist, he is the Elijah who was to come. But many of the Jews believed Elijah's going to precede the Messiah, the one who is going to save us. But they don't see him as the Son of God or the Christ. In fact, if you visit a Jewish Passover now, they will typically, the custom is to leave an empty seat at the Passover table for Elijah as a reminder that he needs to come first before the Messiah comes. Thirdly, they say Jeremiah, and this is more of a Jewish legend that has perpetuated over time. So Jeremiah the prophet, it was said as a a legend, hid the Ark of the Covenant before the Babylonian invasion and the Israelite captivity in 586 B.C. so that it wouldn't be taken and desecrated by the Babylonians, and he hid it in Mount Nebo. And during the intertestamental period, the 400 years or so between uh, the, the finishing of the writing of the Old Testament and Jesus coming on the scene in the New Testament, this picked up steam. And they believed that Jeremiah would be resurrected, come back, grab the Ark of the Covenant, and come with the Ark of the Covenant in, tri- in this real triumphal kind of procession, you could say, and then after that, the Messiah will come. But what people are saying, Jesus is a prophet, he's a, he's a great man, he's powerful, he's even resurrected. That was what the people were saying. But they came up short, not believing Jesus to be who he really was. And men and women, this is, I would say this is the common sentiment throughout history. Jesus is just a really good guy, a unique man, but he's not the son of God. That's what people naturally see. For example, Thomas Jefferson, our founding father in 1803, he read Socrates and Jesus compared. And he, began, he came to the, the conclusion that Jesus' teachings weren't just significant, but the greatest that the world had ever known and that his ethic of agape love put him above all the Greek philosophers. But Jefferson denied Jesus' resurrection from the dead and identity as God's son. That's the common sentiment today. And it is devastating to get what you could call close to believing rightly who Jesus is, but not all the way. And actually, on the surface, it sounds like you're getting close if you think that he is a great prophet. But the difference between a great prophet, even a prophet supposedly resurrected from the dead, and the very Son of God is a chasm of monumental depth and width. But in our human minds, it seems like, oh, we kind of, our people think, like, I, you know, I kind of get close. And I believe one of the reasons that people struggle naturally to acknowledge who Jesus is is that it's very costly to acknowledge that Jesus is the holy Son of God. In other words, let me, let me mention or point out to you a bit about holiness. 
and human response to it. The late R.C. Sproul said this. He said, holiness fills us with a kind of dread. When we come into the presence of the holy as sinners, it fills us with a sense of dread. Can I give you a couple examples from the New Testament of this? So in Luke 5, Jesus provides a miraculous catch of fish for Peter. And he's teaching while seated in in Peter's boat. And he tells Peter, let's go put down out in the deep for a catch. Now, Peter's a professional fisherman. He makes his living. And he says, I've fished all night, and we've caught nothing. He's basically saying to Jesus, this is my job. I know when to fish. I know that night would be the time to do it. And we didn't even catch anything then. And you're asking us to go out during the day. And yet he, he gives in and says, but you know, if you say so, we'll do it. And they, they go out and they catch such a huge amount of fish. It says that the nets were breaking. And as they filled the boat, that the boat started to sink. Do you know what Peter's response is? He falls at Jesus' knees and says, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. In that miracle that was even uniquely tailored to Peter, he realized he was in the presence of someone holy and it revealed his sinfulness and his response is, he he feels this dread, get away. Go away from me, I am a sinful man. Let me give you another example. When Jesus calms the storm in Mark, right? he's he's sleeping on on a pillow, And the disciples accuse him, basically, of not loving him, of not doing anything. Don't you care that we are about to drown, right? And he gets up, and he rebukes the winds of the wave, and it goes totally calm. Do you know what it says after that? It says, they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Or some translations, what manner of man is this? They were scared when the storm was there, But when Jesus calmed it and they had a recognition that he is totally different of his holiness, they were more scared than they were during the storm. See, when sinful people come into the presence of the holy, they have a knee-jerk reaction against it. And so people naturally are going to see Jesus as less than he really is. People also in their sinfulness are naturally going to suppress knowledge of God because they love their sin and they want to do what they want to do. I remember reading from one of uh, our time's most famous atheists talking about his motivation. He was getting kind of honest about his motivation for being an atheist. And he said something to the effect of, I have a, I have a, a sin or some sins that I want to pursue and if God exists that means he has authority he has authority to tell me as a a created being how I should live and because I want to do what I want to do I work to suppress or fight against the idea that God exists at all so that I can do what I want so Jesus asks his disciples what do others think of him and they respond with these answers that highlight that people naturally see Jesus as less than he really is. And then he directs the question at them. In verse 15, he says, but who do you say that I am? 
and Peter answering from for himself but also for the group gives the good confession the central part of Matthew and perhaps the entire Bible you are the Christ the son of the living God so here standing in a land filled with paganism and the worship of false gods he says you are the Christ Christ is Greek for Messiah they've been waiting for hundreds of years, generations, for the one who would come. And it was foretold what he would primarily do in a number of places. Let me, let me read you one, because the disciples had a, were still coming to understand exactly why Jesus came, what the Messiah would do. They had a picture that, that he was a political liberator, and they weren't completely right on that. But here's what the scriptures say about what the Messiah would do. So this was when the angel was talking to Joseph about Mary's pregnancy, and right, he's thinking, you know, my betrothed has cheated on me and gotten pregnant, because how else does someone get pregnant? And the angel says this to Joseph, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The Messiah is going to come and save people from their sins. John the Baptist gave a similar answer in John 1.29. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so sin is at the center of what the Messiah is going to come and conquer. But what the disciples do And what we typically do as well, this is very contemporary, is that we focus on the effects of sin in our environment and on us with ourselves to a degree as the victim. Right? So they see themselves as, okay, we're oppressed by the Romans. Right? So we need a Messiah who is going to come and liberate us from the oppression of the Romans and restore Israel to her greatness. You know, they're probably looking back to Solomon and David's time. That's what he is going to do. And so sin is, is kind of out there affecting me at which I'm a victim. And that is the common or, or most natural way that people think about the problem of sin. Let me just give you an, an example. Think about the effects of sin in our health care and, and what this means for our quality of life because we get sick and we die. Do you know that um, in 2020, you know how much the U.S. spent on health care? 4.1 trillion. It's about $12,530 per person. That was in 2020. I'm sure as COVID went on, it's gone up. Or think about this. In, uh, in the counseling or psychological realm, about one in five Americans have some type of mental health condition. And mental health spending was about $225 billion in 2019. Well, what I'm trying to say or show you by that is that we are affected by the consequences of sin in our physical bodies, and we're eminently aware of it. We have to spend tons of time and money. A lot of you are employed in, in the healthcare arenas. And we tend to see sin affects me like that, and I'm a victim. And to some degree... You are a victim. But ultimately, these are temporal. They're consequences. They're not 
the main issue. When, when John the Baptist said he'll take away the sin of the world, when the angel says to Joseph he'll save their people from their sins, the core issue is the punishment for sin or the wrath of God for sin that people are going to have to justly endure. We need saving from that. But the natural mind doesn't acknowledge very well that it is sinful. But yet the Bible talks repeatedly about the wrath of God. Let me, let me read a few passages that point out the problem of God's wrath or that the problem that we face as people when a just and holy God has wrath for sin. Here's Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God acts justly. Think about the flood. God decided to start over. He wiped out everybody. Think about the, the plagues in Egypt ending with the, the, the killing of the Egyptian firstborn. God is enacting or acting wrathfully at times against sinners. Here, this is, this is in Revelation. This is Revelation 6, 15 to 17. Listen to this. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? The wrath of God is serious. It's, if we really understood it, it's, it's horrifying. And we tend to minimize it. I have a, a brother who's eight and a half years younger than me. So think of this, when I'm 20, he's 11 or 12. I remember one time I, I must have been picking on him or I made him a little mad and he goes, fear the wrath of little Smitty, right? And I, you know, I, I chuckled because what's he, what's he gonna do when he's 12 and I'm, I'm 20? But we have a picture of God's wrath that is sort of like that because to acknowledge just how devastating it is is terrifying unless you're under the blood of Christ, let me, let me read another passage that I think helps understand just how serious God's wrath for sin is. This is Nahum 1, 2-6, where it says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in a whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces. God's wrath is serious. You know when, when Jesus is being led to be crucified? I was studying this passage in Mark 15 a number of years ago, and they offered him a narcotic drink of wine mixed with myrrh. And I was looking into that, and what I 
discovered in my research was that it was actually pretty common for the women who had compassion, women of Jerusalem had compassion on the crucifixion victims to mix this up and give it to crucifixion victims so that it would, because it dulled their senses and their physical pain. So it was an act of compassion. You know, Jesus has offered this and he won't drink it. I was thinking about that and looking at that and it dawned on me. Jesus is yes going to go to the cross and there's a, an unbelievable physical punishment that he is going to endure. But that is really only a window into what is really happening. Because upon Jesus, the sins of the world, all those who would believe, millions, perhaps even billions, are placed upon him. And God in his white-hot wrath is pouring out his indignation upon Jesus. What on earth is a narcotic drink going to do to fend off the wrath of God? Less than nothing. And yet that's what is occurring upon the cross. Jesus is bearing an incredible weight of God's wrath for sin. Now I do want to mention that God does not take delight in the death of the wicked. He's just, and so he's going to pour out wrath for sin. But Ezekiel 33, 11 says this, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? God desires that we turn back from our wicked ways, believe and trust in Christ. I don't know if you've ever thought about this as I was just explaining, okay, Jesus is on the cross and the wrath of God for an incredible amount of sin is being poured out on him and yet he was only on the cross for about six hours. How does that pay for the sin when God has as much anger about sin? How does only six hours uh, accomplish that? Well, the, the second part of Peter's confession. You're the Christ, you're the son of God. Jesus is the eternal son of God. He is infinite. And so while people who do not trust in Christ will pay for their sins eternally, Jesus, as the infinite son of God, has the, you could say, capacity or ability to pay for the sins of millions and billions of people in what we would see as a finite amount of time. Jesus equated himself as God, and people knew it. You know, in, in John 8, the Jews accuse him, he's doing these miraculous things, he accused him of having a demon. And Jesus responds to them, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And they're like, what? And Abraham is, is, you know, 1,400, 1,500 years earlier than this. And they say, you're not even 50, and you've seen Abraham. And Jesus responds, before Abraham was, I am. He says, I am, he's getting it, I am co-eternal. I am equal with God the Father. I'm of the same nature. And people understood that he was saying this. I mean, let me read for you in, in John 10 of an exchange Jesus has with some of the Jews. 
He says this, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him and Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. They understood the claims that he was making, and they rejected it. You are the Christ. You're going to save from sins. You're the Son of God, the Son of the living God. So here in a land of paganism and dead idols, Peter says, you are the Son of of the living God. You're not just a prophet. You're not a prophet associated with a dead idol. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God, the supreme and only God. And what Jesus says in response tells us that it is the living God who has to make us alive to the reality of who he is. Think about this. God has to open our eyes to Jesus' true nature. This is what Jesus tells Peter in verse 17. He says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. God has to open our eyes. You, you might think like Peter could perhaps have a little bit of pride, like, yeah, we, I figured it out, or we figured it out who you are, as though they're like uh, Isaac Newton discovering uh, calculus. Right? Like, Jesus gives them a, a dose of humble pie. My Father has revealed this to you. And he even does a, a play on word. He calls him, he calls him uh, Simon Barjona, or Simon, son of Jonah. All right? He connects it to his earthly father and his address, but then says, My Father is the one who has opened your eyes to actually see who I am. And this is our reality. We look to God. To open our eyes. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 to 6 says this. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now catch this. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. Okay, talking about creation. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Just as God shone light out of darkness to create the world, he has to shine a light in your life for you to understand this. I've often thought of it as like, God has to flip the light switch on for you. And this, this puts us in an incredibly humble position. You could say like, yeah, I recognize who, who Jesus is. You, you can say along with me, Jesus, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. But you can't take credit for it. Again, like I said, like Isaac Newton uh, discovering calculus. God had to show it. Because our natural inclination of people is to not recognize who God is and to not obey and follow him. That's why the Apostle Paul makes the, the argument in Romans 3, 10 to 12, and he's making a broad statement about how all humanity is. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's the, that's the natural 
state. We need help. And in John 6, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And there's a, there's a real-life participation in this. Like, I can talk about how I came to Christ in college and say, I placed my faith in Christ. I turned from my sin. I asked him to forgive me. All, all that's real. I am involved, but God has to do something to flip the light on to get me there. God has to open our eyes to Jesus' true nature. And you guys, Peter's confession, and he, he's speaking for himself, but he's also speaking for the, for the group. It is the key to the foundation and expansion of the church. We, we stand and are gathered because of this confession, and it's outworking. Here's what Jesus says in verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It is accurate to say that Jesus is going to build his church, and, and Peter is going to play a unique part in it. He's going to, as an apostle, but even as you could say the head among equals, he's going to play a unique role. His name here means rock. Peter's saying something about Peter's, Peter's nature, and he's renaming him. This does not imply, and we don't have a ton of time to go into this, this does not imply that Peter is the first pope, and that there's apostolic succession, and that up to the present day there is a man in this office exactly carrying the authority that Peter had. That's not accurate. Peter had his faults. Like, after after this, after this, he's going to deny Jesus three times. But you know what he's going to do? He's going to repent. He's going to go out and weep bitterly and come back. He's going to get, even after Jesus has uh, died, rose again, and ascended, he's going to get reprimanded by the Apostle Paul for not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. You can read about that in Galatians. But Jesus says he is going to build his church and Peter is going to play a unique role and have an, a, a unique authority and it's going to guarantee victory that is incredibly encouraging to me especially in the in the climate and the culture that we live in now where it seems like so much is going against us but in the end we win we can trust that the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church of god in verse 19, Jesus gives Peter, the apostles, and the church, and this carries down through history, authority. It says this, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. One commentator says this about what the, what the keys of the kingdom of heaven are. It says, or he said, Peter is given authority to admit entrance into the kingdom by preaching the gospel an authority that is subsequently granted to all who are called to proclaim the gospel. We share, to a degree, in this authority. Right? Peter's going to have a, a unique place right at Pentecost. He's the one who stands up and they're accusing them of being drunk because the Holy Spirit has come upon them and they're speaking in other languages and he, and he you know, gives this you know, amazing sermon and many repent and believe and are baptized. Right? He had a, a key part in that we see in Acts 10, God reveals to him the inclusion of the Gentiles, of which pretty much all of us here are, are included 
in a part of God's people if they believe upon Jesus by faith. He does have a a unique role, but it also is granted to the church moving down through history. He's told, you will bind and loose. He's going to exercise a discipline of right or wrong for those in the kingdom. And God is going to grant that authority. You're going to go from the apostles to the, the leaders in the church everywhere that God has his church, which is the, the pastor elders. They're going to carry an authority. Peter, again, uniquely, think, of, think with me for a second in Acts 6, the situation with Ananias and Sapphira. And they, they lie the Holy Spirit about what they're doing with the gift of money. And it's Peter who's the one who says, you haven't lied to men, but to the Holy Spirit. And he makes a, a statement about their impending death, and they fall down, you know, dead. And the wife comes in later, and the same thing. So he has a unique authority in enacting discipline within the church. But it carries down to us. Our passage ends with a, what I think is a very striking statement by Jesus that in some senses might confuse, but obviously as the Son of God, he has good reasons for everything. It says, Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. I think it best to understand his statement that if he had as explicitly, you know, said it as explicitly, or had them say it as explicitly, as they did, that people would take the confession and still think of it through the framework of kind of the conquering hero Messiah. Here's one reason I think that. In the passage directly after we've just read, I assume you know, Cody will probably be preaching on it next week, is this famous passage where Jesus starts to say he's going to go back to Jerusalem, uh, he's going to be rejected by the chief priests and elders, they're going to put him to death, And then he's going to raise again on the third day. And Peter's like, whoa, no, this will not happen to you. And Jesus ends up saying to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. And so Jesus is going to allow, think about this. They're going to really make this proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, after he has died and risen again. That's when it's really going to go forward. And Jesus, knowing timing and the purposes and plans of God, says for the moment, don't tell anyone that I am the Christ. And I close with a story that has been uniquely moving to me over the years that encapsulates our passage and what we've talked about, about making the good confession about keeping the good confession under duress, and about the authority that the believer has to preach the gospel that Jesus gave to Peter and the apostles and it has transferred on. This was written by uh, a story told by Richard Wormbrand, who uh, started Voice of the Martyrs. He was a Christian in communist uh, Romania in the 1960s. And he tells this moving story. He says, first, if I were to 
continue to tell all the horrors of communists and all the self-sacrifices of Christians, I would never finish. Not only the tortures were known, the heroic deeds were known too. The heroic examples of those in prison still greatly inspire the brethren who were still free. One of our workers was a young girl of the underground church. The communist police discovered that she secretly spread gospels and taught children about Christ. They decided to arrest her, but to make the arrest more agonizing and as painful as they could, they decided to delay her arrest a few weeks until the day she was to be married. On her wedding day, the girl was dressed as a bride, the most wonderful, joyous day in a girl's life. Suddenly, the door was pushed open and the secret police rushed in. When the bride saw the secret police, she held out her arms towards them to be handcuffed. They roughly put the manacles on her wrists. She looked toward her beloved, then kissed the chains and said, I thank my heavenly bridegroom for this jewel that he has presented to me on my marriage day. I thank him that I am worthy to suffer for him. She was dragged off with weeping Christians and a weeping bridegroom left behind. They knew what happens to young Christian girls in the hands of communist guards. Men and women, may we persevere, proclaim the excellencies of Christ with the authority that he has given us and to hold fast our confession. Thank you so much for listening. We hope this sermon encourages you as you go about your week. If you're in Castleton or even the Fargo-Moorhead area, come check us out. Our website is harvestplainschurch.org. That's harvestplainschurch.org. Thanks again, and we hope you'll tune in next week.